Well, amen and good evening. I'm glad to be with you. Glad to be with you tonight and uh, over the next few nights. Uh, I appreciate uh, having uh, just met Andrew and talked with him and met his family. I look forward to getting to know him uh, even more, and I appreciate the invitation uh, to be here. Uh, it is a big responsibility uh, when God entrusts a pulpit and the ministry of this pulpit to a man. Uh, and so I do not take it lightly that the one that God has entrusted with this pulpit, that he has entrusted it to me for a few nights. Uh, I do not take that lightly. It is a big deal. And I'm humbled and, and honored, truly uh, humbled and honored to be here. I'm glad to be with you. I look forward to seeing what God does in our time together. Um, appreciate uh, the, the music already. It's funny, as soon as he started... Um, I turned to, to Andrew and I said, wow, he can sing. And I realized even as I said it that I was a little shocked. David, I, I, I don't know why I was shocked. I don't know what I was expecting out of you, uh, but you can sing, man. It was good. <laughs> Jesus said, out of, the, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. And apparently my heart was surprised that you could actually sing. <laughs> uh, no, I am glad to be with you. Let's go ahead and get uh, sort of that that point of tension out of the way, right? Uh, so I, I'm a pastor in Alabama, uh, but I'm not from Alabama. Therefore, I do not root for Alabama, okay? Let's go ahead and clear that up. Let's clear the air. I, I could feel the tension. Is he one of those? I don't know. He acts like one of those. I don't know. Uh, no, I'm a Mississippi boy originally, born and raised in Mississippi. So I'm a Mississippi State fan. Most people don't really care if you're a Mississippi State fan because, you know, we're State fans. We're used to it. We're used to uh, to it, meaning not winning a whole lot. Uh, and so most people don't really, they're not bothered if you're a State fan. Uh, but at least I'm not one of those Alabama fans. Amen. I think we can collectively agree to amen that. Um, Second Chronicles is where I want us to begin tonight. Second Chronicles. Um in our time here this week, we are setting this week aside as a time of revival. Uh, oftentimes when we hear that word revival, we take it to mean a series of meetings. And that is what that term has become, a series of, of meetings. And what I want in our time this week is for it to be more than a series of meetings. I want God to meet with us and I want God to affect change in our hearts and in our lives. Well, in order for that to happen, I feel like we need to set our parameters for what we're talking about when we talk about revival. And in order to do that, we're going to go Old Testament to 2 Chronicles chapter 7. I'm sure you are familiar with this passage. You've probably heard it if you've been in church. If you've been to a revival meeting before, you've probably heard this passage preached. I don't assume or presume that I'm going to give you anything that is uh, that new, something that you haven't heard. My only prayer is that God would maybe remind us of what we have heard before, that God would pierce us to the heart uh, with His Word, that God would bring about change. But I do want us to understand what we mean when we say revival, and I believe Second Chronicles 7 will help us with that. We're going to begin in verse 11 to get a running start. We're going to hang out more in verse verses 13 and 14. But if I might now maybe set our parameters culturally with where we are and what we're dealing with 
and why we desperately need to focus our attention on the issue of revival. The simple statement of revival is that it means to live again. Revive. That vive part comes from a Latin word which means life. And so it quite literally means to live again. We understand as Jesus tells us in John chapter 3 that in order to experience the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, we must be born again. And when we are born again, we are given new life. Well, it seems that there comes this experience in many of our Christian walks in which we need God to breathe a fresh passion, a renewal, a reinvigoration of life in us. It's been true for thousands of years throughout scriptural history of God's people where He needed to remind them of who He is, who we are, and how we should live based on who He is and who we are. And so there's this need for a freshness of life. And that's what we mean by revival. Now understand, when we say that, we're talking about those who are already living, having a freshness of life, reinfused, reinvigorated. So revival is predominantly about God's people being reminded of who He is, who they are, and how we should live based on who He is and who we are. Revival starts with God's people, and we're going to see that here in 2 Chronicles 7. And we are desperate for revival. I don't think we realize how desperate we are. This past week, I went to our local, one of our local colleges. The University of South Alabama is in Mobile. And uh, at the University of South Alabama, I, I went there for the purpose of talking to some students uh, about abortion. Uh, next week, we, we were going, walking through Psalms as a church um, for the first 40 days of the new year. And so we didn't really camp out on the Sanctity of Human Life Sunday. Uh, I, I like to spend some time every year on the Sanctity of Life and talk about that and why it's important. And so we're pushing that to next Sunday. Well, in preparation for that, um, it's one thing to preach to people in a church about the Sanctity of Life and to preach about abortion and against abortion. It's another thing to have conversations with people who are on the opposite end of that perspective and to talk with them about why they believe what they believe and what they think about those of us who believe differently than them. So I went to South Alabama, spent about three and a half to four hours talking to students. I was talking to a young man named Matthew. Interestingly enough, think about that name, Matthew. First gospel, first book of the New Testament. As I was driving over here this afternoon, there was a billboard that said, if you want to know more about Jesus, read the gospel of Matthew. And I thought, well, yeah, hey. It's a great idea, right? It's a whole book that talks about Jesus and who he is. Matthew and his uh, Jewish name being Levi, that's where our second child, our first son, that's where we got his name was Matthew or Levi. That's where we, got, we, we uh, took his name from. His name is Levi. Matthew is a pretty big deal. I was talking to a young man named Matthew and we ended up talking for about an hour and in our conversation, I just wanted to know his, his beliefs I wanted to know what he thought about life. I wanted to know what he thought about abortion. But uh, expanding that to value of human life, I was shocked. I was shocked as I was talking to this young man who is a very bright young man, obviously a very gifted young man. As we were talking about value on a human life and when value should be given to a human life, 
Um, he talked about how he had no problem taking the life of that which is in the womb. In our conversation, I asked him, I said, well, let me ask you a question. Uh, in your talking about human life, I said, let's imagine that there's a man who's in a coma or a woman who's in a coma. This person we know will wake up in six months, but this person, while they are in a coma, they are, they are, having a, they are placing a financial burden on their family. The financial burden is so steep and so great that this family will lose their home if they allow this person to remain in a coma for six more months. They will lose their home. I said, are you comfortable with them killing this person so that they can keep their home? And he said, yes. And I said, let me ask you that again. Are you comfortable with them taking the life of a man in a coma who will wake up in six months because he is placing an undue financial burden on this family? Are you comfortable with taking his life? And he said, absolutely. And I said, brother, that is a dangerous and slippery slope that you're on. And he said, I know it, and I'm okay with it. I was stunned. What I found in my conversations with several students is that we're in different worlds, brothers and sisters. We're talking about saving a life to people who don't value life. We're talking about a completely different perspective. Now, that's not me taking a shot at a particular group of people. We had great conversations. None of us ever got angry. And we all left as friends in our conversations. But what I found was a group of people who think wholly different than the biblical worldview would have us think like. How did they get there? Compare that with an uh, interview of a young lady uh, who grew up in church, grew up in Sunday school, in uh, asking her why she abandoned the church, why she has now transitioned to secularism, which is just basically, in a sense, she's going to live how she wants to live. Why, why is she in that belief system? Why is she in that value system? Why does she believe like that? And she says, because I asked questions in Sunday school. And they didn't answer. It wasn't that they answered wrongly. It was that they didn't answer. She said that we weren't allowed to ask questions. We weren't allowed. And so when she would ask these questions, the questions, not only were they not answered, but they weren't allowed. So she went to another source for the answer. She found her answer that she was looking for outside of the church. We could keep down this road. We had a, a ministry at our church this morning. Uh, it's called the Home of Grace, and it's a, it's a women's home for recovering alcoholics and addicts, where they go in there for the purpose of recovery. We had a testimony from a woman who is the wife of a mayor near Mobile, and she was married. Her husband, her first husband, took his life. Within a year, she lost a child. She lost that husband. She lost a sister. Just her world fell apart. And she had nowhere to run, which hurts me, brothers and sisters. It hurts me. Because you would think that she would run to the church. But that wasn't even on her radar screen. So she ran to drugs and she ran to alcohol. She almost took her own life. Eventually, she found her way into this ministry where she, the first day, at this ministry, the first 
day, they shared Jesus with her. And by midnight that night, the first day, she was transformed and born again. And she has been sober almost a decade now when she heard Jesus the first day. And I'm sitting here analyzing all this and evaluating it, and I'm asking myself, and I'm asking all of us as the church, what are we doing? Where have we been? And why are we continually losing ground in the culture wars? 2 Chronicles 7 is for a people who look around and things are not as they should be. They were assuming that they were the people of God, therefore everything would always go well for them. But things aren't going to always go well for them, are they? If you've read the Old Testament, you see that. You see that bear out. Things don't always go well for them to the point where they lose their nation. In 2 Chronicles 7, God is preparing them for these moments that would come in the future when things wouldn't go well with them. And He wants to tell them why these things aren't going well with them and how they should respond as God's people to experience what we would call revival. 2 Chronicles chapter 7. We'll begin in verse 11 of 2 Chronicles 7. We find ourselves at the building and the dedication of the temple. David has brought not only the ark to Jerusalem, but they have established, being him led by God, he has established that that is to be the place, the dwelling place of God. But God said, David, you are not to build it because you are a king that was about war, but your son is going to be a king who would be about building my temple. That son, of course, was Solomon. Solomon builds the temple. He is now dedicating the temple, and he has a moment with God. In 2 Chronicles 7, verse 11, it says, When Solomon had finished the temple of the Lord and the royal palace and had succeeded in carrying out all he had in mind to do in the temple of the Lord and in his own palace. So he's been building some stuff. He's been building some stuff. He's been working hard. Verse 12, The Lord appeared to him at night and said, I have heard your prayer and have chosen this place for myself as a temple for sacrifices. Verse 13, when I shut up the heavens, it's important, I have this word blocked off in my particular translation here, in this particular copy of God's word. When. Usually the formula is if, then, right? That's not the formula here. He says when, and then he says if. When I shut up the heavens so that there is no rain, or command locusts to devour the land, or send a plague among my people. All bad things, right? These are not the things that you want to hear. God appears and you say, oh God is about to, to give me a good word. I mean, we're dedicating the temple. It's a big moment in the life of our nation here. And God says, Solomon, I got some bad news for you. This is what's going to happen, but I want to prepare you, Solomon. I don't want you going into this blindly. I want you to understand that things will go bad, but there's hope. Hear me, church. Things might be bad, but there's hope. 
But we have to at least address the bad in order to recognize the source of hope and the avenue to hope. When I do these things, who's doing those things? He doesn't say when these things happen to you. He says when I do these things to you. Verse 14. If. See that? Not if then, but when if. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways or repent. It's another way to say that. Then will I hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and will heal their land. Now my eyes will be open and my ears attentive to the prayers offered in this place. I have chosen and consecrated this temple so that my name may be there forever. My eyes and my heart will always be there. God promises in this passage, and He promises this to Israel, to His people, that when they repented of their rebellion, He would renew them. When they repented of their rebellion, He would renew them. As we walk through this passage, I simply want to continue to circle back to this thought of revival as our only hope. Revival is our only hope. Revival is our only hope. What do we do with this passage? It's troublesome in a sense because there are differences. As we look at the Old Testament and then we wonder how to apply these Old Testament passages and maybe more specifically principles to our life, we have to recognize the differences between us and them. In seminary, we call it hermeneutics. It's just a fancy word that we use to let y'all know that we studied stuff at seminary. It just means biblical interpretation. And when you're interpreting the Bible, there are these rules that help you understand how to interpret the Bible. And one of the things that we do with the Old Testament is we say, all right, what's the principle here? And what's different between the Old Testament people and us? That main difference, of course, being that they're that side of the cross in the empty tomb, right? Jesus is a pretty big deal in this book. And so the fact that they're on the other side of Jesus, that makes a big difference. But other than that, what's different about them than us? Well, there are some key differences that we need to at least recognize in order to understand how we can move the principles of this passage to us today. Number one is, well, he's talking to Israel. Israel was a theocracy, meaning God was the ruler. God was the king until they became a monarchy. Then they had a king, right? They were following God. He was their governmental leader. They looked to him as to how they should run their nation, as to how they should run the state. Then they became a monarchy, and eventually they lost that as well. But at this point, they're still following God. The monarchy is following God, so you could say it's a theocratic monarchy. That's not us. We're a democratic republic. Not a democracy. We're a democratic republic. We have elected officials that do our bidding for us in terms of the law, right? So we are not this group of people. We are not Israel. 
God is saying to Israel that I'm going to do these things to you as a people, as a nation. Well, we're not them. Not only that, He's saying it to a king. We don't have a king. We don't really like kings. We kind of push against and fight against kings, right? We threw off that whole king thing in the 1700s because we didn't like it so much. So there are some notable, noticeable differences here. Our presidents are not King David. Our presidents are not King Solomon. So the promises that were conveyed to David, to Solomon, and to the kingly line through them, well, they don't apply to us. They don't apply to our leadership anyway. The USA is not the nation of Israel. Our nation was founded by Christians on Christian principles. God has blessed this nation. God has used this nation. I would say one of the most amazing things about nation, if, if this nation, if not the most amazing thing, is religious freedom. But we're not Israel. We're not Israel. So what do we do with this? Are we so different that these passages don't apply to us? We do recognize within this that there is a theological principle that applies to them and it applies to us. And that principle is this. When people humbly repent of their rebellion, God responds and He renews. I would say particularly leaders, when they repent of their rebellion, God responds and He renews. That's not a political statement. That's simply stating the fact. People follow their leaders and when a leader repents, it tends to filter down. What I would submit to you is let's don't even look to the leader to do it. Let's start it from the grassroots level. And let's begin repenting to God and asking that He would move and asking that He would renew. Martin Selman said it this way, the fact that spiritual restoration is offered to one nation also makes it available in principle to any other nation. We've seen this example before. You remember the story of Jonah? God says, hey Jonah, go up to Nineveh. And Jonah says, uh-uh, not going to do it. It's not because Jonah was scared. It was because those Ninevites were some crazy warrior people. Nineveh was an incredibly warrior-driven, dangerous, crazy place. The walls of Nineveh was constructed with the skeletal remains of the enemies that they had conquered. They wanted it to be, as you walked up to Nineveh, that you saw the conquered foes that you were scared to death. They were terribly despicable people. And Jonah said, I'm not going to preach to those people, God, because you will have mercy on them, and I don't think they deserve mercy. And so he ran from God, the prophet of God ran from God. Well, God gets His attention. That's putting it mildly, right? God gets His attention. And I love that picture there in Jonah 2 where it says that Jonah prayed to God from the belly of the fish. And it says, In my distress I called to the Lord from the depths of the grave. I cried for help and you listened to my cry. And then the fish vomits Jonah onto the land. And then God says, Hey Jonah, go to Nineveh. And Jonah says, Okay. What happens? He goes to Nineveh. He preaches. They repent. And God is merciful. We've seen this principle, haven't we? Not just with Israel. We've seen it with even Nineveh. 
when people respond to God's pressure on them in the right way and humble themselves, God will respond to people with mercy and with life. Revival is our only hope. And revival is, if I could state it succinctly, it is a sovereign and extraordinary movement of God. It is a sovereign and extraordinary movement of God to renew His people. What do I mean by that? It's sovereign in the sense that we can't conjure it up. Oftentimes we kind of approach God that way, right? Like if we can sing good enough, well, God will descend. If we can pray good enough, God will descend. Brothers and sisters, that's not how it works. Praise God. God is here waiting on us. God is moving us to worship Him. He's the subject moving us to worship. He's the object of our worship. And it's the same with revival. God is the one stirring our hearts, moving in our lives. He's wanting us to respond to Him. It's His movement among us. And it is extraordinary. I'm a student of revivals. I have been for 15 years now. I've read about and had to take classes on. Therefore, I've written about most of the great revivals that have taken place in the world. And they cannot be explained in human terms. They cannot be explained in human terms. All you can say is that God moved. And oh, I long to see it in my life. And it's our only hope, brothers and sisters. So as we walk through this passage, what are some things that we can glean from this? Well, I want you to notice first off that God's actions are the controlling agents over the objects, right? Who is controlling the heavens, therefore the rain? Who is controlling the locusts? Who is controlling the plagues? God. God is in control. And the God who controls the natural elements, meaning the rain, the insects, the famine or the lack thereof, the plague or the lack thereof, the God who controls those, well, He's the God who can rescue us. Rescue us from ourselves. We see in this passage that revival occurs. Remember, revival is our only hope. How does it happen? Again, we're not talking about conjuring it up. We're talking about recognizing these characteristics from God's Word about how and when revival occurs. So just looking at these hallmarks straight from God's Word, my job is simply to say, look at what God has said, and this is what it looks like in our lives. Revival occurs, first off, among God's people. Revival occurs among God's people. If my people, verse 14, if my people, the word meant those who were in a relationship with God. The idea is it was a group of people who had something in common. It was used for ethnic Jews, but also for those who were not born Jews, but were Gentiles who converted to Judaism. They were connected by God, not by blood, but by God. They were His people connected by God. And God called them His people. He heard their cries in Exodus 3. He said, I've heard the cries of my people. And I'm going to move in response to them. He delivered them. He made a covenant with them. He brought them into the promised land. He blessed them. And then in Hosea 1, we see this fascinating statement 
where they become lo ami. The word that's used here for people is the Hebrew word, the language of the Old Testament, ami. Well, if you know the story of Hosea, he names his children some really odd names. Given to his children by God. Lo ruhamah, no compassion. Lo ami, not my people. And he was to go and introduce his children. Well, what's his name? Well, that's little Lo Ruhamah. No compassion. Huh. Why would you name your child that? Well, God's got a word for you. Lo Ami, not my people. Why would you name your child that? Well, God's got a word for you. What's fascinating, though, when we look at Hosea chapter 1 and verse 19, it talks about them not being God's people anymore. And we can mess up this concept. It literally says in Hosea chapter 1, verse 19, you are not my people and I am no longer Yahweh to you. Most translations have it saying that they are not His people. And the, the sense that we get is that God has rejected them. But that's not how it's reflected in the language of the Old Testament. How it's reflected in the language of the Old Testament is that they no longer act towards God like He's their God. They have rejected Him. They have pushed Him off. So they're not my people, not by God's pushing them away, but by their voluntary removing themselves from God. They are acting towards God like they are not His people. Hosea is a reflection of the punishment that happens when the people reject God's laws, His covenant, and His love. Psalm 85.6 says it this way, Will you not revive us again that your people may rejoice in you? Revival begins among God's people. If my people who are called by my name, the idea of God naming them after Himself demonstrates that He is the authority. He is their Lord. Who named my kids? You don't know me. You know one of my children's name. You can make some assumptions, right? Who named my children? Well, my wife and I named our children. Well, how dare we? How dare we do something like that? You say, what are you talking about, man? Of course we named our children. Why? Well, we are in authority over our children. God has identified these people and us, as we see in the book of Acts, they were called Christians first at Antioch. We are identified with God, which is not just cool that we get to be on His team. It shows and signifies that He is our Lord. He is the authority. He's not just saying, I want you to hang out with me because you're my people. He's saying, remember, you are my people. That means that I am your God. I am in control. I am over you. But it also means that they are to be and to act like His people. My children have their own first names, but they have my last name. And they are to act like they have my last name. There's something that comes along with that. There are expectations. Not from those outside, although there are, but from inside. I have expectations for my kids who are called by my name. 
There are certain characteristics that I want to see in their life. There are certain characteristics that I'm not only trying to build, but I'm also trying to root out. Because they're mine. They bear my name. Well, God's trying to do the same thing in our lives. We bear His name. We are His people. And we are to live and to act like His people. A name distinguishes someone, doesn't it? You put a name on something and it distinguishes it from other names, from other people, from other labels. That's what a name does. So God says, if my people who are called by my name, that is a big deal, brothers and sisters. I remember a young man I went to high school with, he was recognized by most as a Christian. He was a leader in his youth group. Went to college. Joined the typical college scene. There was also a man that myself and others were trying to reach with the good news of Jesus. He wanted nothing to do with Jesus. This particular young man that I went to high school with, he made a series of bad decisions. Became very public that he was living a life that did not reflect the name of Jesus. He was living a life that was duplicitous. And I remember this man that we had been trying to reach with the gospel of Jesus, looking at him and saying, good job, Christian. And it forever ended our conversations about Jesus. As long as I live, I will never forget that statement. Good job, Christian. What he meant was, you throw that term around on you. You use it for your convenience, but you don't live like it. It's a big deal to be called by the name of God, Jesus Christ. And we are Christians. Brothers and sisters, revival occurs among God's people when we realize that we are His people called by His name. We bear His name. And sadly, we keep looking everywhere else for help, don't we? We look to Washington. We look to the state level. We look everywhere else. We look to the educational system. We look to media. We look everywhere else. And I'm not saying we shouldn't act for change in these particular areas. I'm not saying that we should not attempt to make change when we can. But our answer and our hope does not lie anywhere else. It lies in God's church among His people. When we realize that we are His, that He would breathe life into us, that we would live like the people He has called us to be, revival occurs and begins among God's people. It's on us. When I look at my children, I have an 8-year-old, a 6-year-old, and a 3-year-old. When I look at my children and I think about where will they be in 20 years? What will the world be like? It gives me a sense of urgency. It reminds me that I need to stop complaining about those out there and I need to be about the business that God has called me to be. I need to be telling people about Jesus because what Matthew needs, yes, he needs to have serious conversations about matters like abortion and life and value of a human life, but what he needs more than anything is he needs Jesus to change his life. And he needs me to tell him about Jesus. 
He doesn't need me to tell him that he's just wrong about abortion. He needs me to tell him that he's a lost sinner, but there is hope in Jesus. And Jesus will do more in that young man than I could do in hours and days and weeks and months talking to him about political issues, ethical issues, and any other societal issues. He needs Jesus. Whose job is it to take Jesus to them? It's us. The reason that we are where we are culturally is because the church has hidden its light under a basket. Notice what Jesus says. He says you are the salt. You are the light. He doesn't say you're supposed to be the salt. You're supposed to be the light. He says you are the salt and you are the light. The question is, are you living salty? Are you living with your light shining? If you are living salty, what that means is, and it's an incredible illustration, everything salt touches, it changes. You cannot come into contact with salt and taste the same, smell the same, be the same. You have changed by its very nature of touching you. And that's how we're supposed to be. We're supposed to go out into our world, into our schools, into our workplaces, into the culture, and simply by our existence and our interaction with people, they are changed because they've come into contact with us. And simply by us going out into the world, by us shining the light, it pushes back the darkness. So how has the darkness pervaded and invaded us? It's because we have covered the light. Revival starts right here with us. If we want to see change out there, it begins right in here. This is where we've got to start, brothers and sisters. I tell you this in love. I am greatly concerned about where we are headed as a nation and as a culture. And it wakes me up every morning with a sense of urgency that I need to be about the business of God. Revival occurs among the people of God. And revival occurs when the people of God. We see these steps, right? If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves. This is actually the first statement and it leads the way. Everything else that we do comes because we have humbled ourselves. It's when we recognize how desperate we are for God. We recognize how desperate we are for God. This morning... We were in Psalm 130, out of the depths. That's how it begins. Out of the depths, I cry to you, O Lord. In thinking about that psalm, too often we see ourselves as in need of assistance rather than in need of rescue. And there's a big difference. It was raining this morning when I left the house. You know, rain's coming down and rain's just inconvenient. And the difference is, when it's raining and it's inconvenient, you might ask for help. Hey, can I borrow your umbrella? Or hey, can I borrow your raincoat? Something like that. It's inconvenient, so you might ask for help. It's a difference between that and a Category 5 hurricane. When you're in a Category 5 hurricane, you don't just need help. You need rescue. Brothers and sisters, we don't just need help from God. We need God to rescue us. Your family doesn't just need God to give you a little assist. He need, you, your family needs God to rescue them. I'm assuming that. I don't know about you, but my family is all kinds of messed up. 
not my wife, and not my kids. They might tell you that I'm messed up. I would say as a family unit, we're not that messed up. I come from a family that's pretty messed up. My parents have nine marriages between the two of them. I grew up in a home that was not a Christian home. I grew up in a home that wasn't leading me towards Jesus. And God changed my life. God took me out of the depths. And God set me on a rock. My older brother and I are probably the only two marriages in our whole family, both sides of the family, that are still together. We're relatively young but we're the only ones who still have a marriage intact. My family's been obliterated by sin, devastated by sin. They're desperate for Jesus. Had grandparents die without Jesus. I have cousins. I have friends. I have loved ones who don't know Jesus. I have a half-brother who doesn't know Jesus, doesn't want to hear about Jesus with whom I haven't spoken in four years because he doesn't want to hear about Jesus. Brothers and sisters, I'm not just some preacher who's living in the fairyland. I know real life, and I know our families are desperate for a work of Jesus. The question is, are we just going to go home and turn on the TV and act like we've always acted? Or are we going to realize that we need God to rescue us? We need God to move. What that takes is it takes humility to say, God, I I am inadequate. I have several degrees in theology from an incredible seminary. But I am inadequate to convince you tonight of how much you need God to rescue you. I am inadequate to convince my family of how much they need God to rescue them. I need God to rescue them. And only He can do it. Humble ourselves. Humble ourselves before God. God, we need You. We're desperate for You. We'll humble themselves and pray. Remember, humility leads all of this. We pray. Why do we pray? Because we know we need God. Martin Selman again said this, how far the corporate life of one's own nation shows evidence of spiritual decline or progress depends to a significant extent on the prayers of Christian people. Our complaints against culture, media, politics, and our nation need to turn to prayers for culture, media, politics, and our nation. Imagine if we complained less and prayed more. Imagine if all of the time we spend on social media complaining We spend on our knees in prayer to God. How would things be different? Pray. One of my favorite revivals to ever study is the Layman's Prayer Revival of 1857. A man named Jeremiah Lamphere was a businessman. He was in New York City at the time. The nation was devastated. 1857, you've got to understand in that that we're just a few years from those first few shots that would be fired at Fort Sumner. We're a few years out from the Civil War, so the nation was on the brink of civil war, true civil war. We're not real unified right now as a nation, but we often say it's never been this bad. In the 1860s, it was worse. We were killing each other. 
in a civil war. 1857, we're a few years before that. The economic situation had been through a financial collapse. What happened in the what late 20s, early 30s with the, the collapse of Wall Street had happened in the 1850s. Those uh, Wall Street brokers had committed suicide because of the depression that they had experienced. Times were terrible. Jeremiah Lanfear was hired by the old North Dutch Reformed Church in downtown Manhattan. He was a businessman. And they said, we want you to be our missions guy. He didn't know what to do. Jeremiah Lanfear, he begins to walk the streets of New York. And he said every day he would see the businessmen to work. And he saw their downcast faces. And he realized that they were people going to work and they had no hope. They were people leaving work and they had no hope. And he prayed a simple prayer. In King James English, he said, Lord, what wilt thou have me do? And God put on his heart to start a prayer meeting. So he opened up the doors of the church at 12 o'clock. He had sent out a basically a brochure or a flyer would be a better word for it. He had passed around this flyer, just walking the streets of New York, inviting people to a noon prayer meeting from 12 to 1. We're just going to pray. First day, he opens up the doors. He goes to the altar. He gets on his knees. He begins praying. By the end of that time, six people had joined him. Seven people prayed in that church. Within two weeks, the room was full. Within a month, it had overflowed to every room in the church. It had spilled over into other churches. Within a few months, in less than six months, they were emptying out the fire stations, the police stations, the theaters. Every public building in New York City was emptied out so that people could gather in them between the hours of 12 to 1. People were getting born again. The movement spread from New York to Boston to Baltimore. It spread all over the East Coast. It was said that ships coming into the harbors, New York, Boston, and Baltimore, the ships would come in and they would feel the presence of God as their ship entered the harbors. There would be people on the ship who would begin praying because the Spirit of God was so heavy. They would begin praying. People around would say, what are you doing? They would tell them about Jesus People would begin to get saved. They would enter into the harbor singing praises after dozens and dozens and dozens of people on the ship were saved. The movement spread from the northeast to the midwest all the way to the west. It was said that you could start in the west, go to New York between the hours of 12 to 1. You would not pass through a town in America that was not meeting for prayer. Because one man said, God, what will you have me do? And you know, God's answer was simple. What I've always asked you to do, pray and seek my face. Humble themselves, pray, seek my faith, face. It's diligence. It's not just a glance. It's inquiring with a sense of intensity. And it's personal. It's not seeking the blessings from His hands. It's seeking His face. It's seeking His face. It's not about the stuff from God. It's about God Himself. Are we seeking God's face? Or are we seeking the blessings of God? You know, one of the things, and I'll use this as an illustration, and hopefully you understand the point that I'm trying to drive to. 
One of the things that concerns me is, is the way that we talk about heaven. When we talk about heaven, we often talk about the stuff that is in heaven more than we talk about Jesus. We're looking forward to this aspect of heaven. We're looking forward to these people who are in heaven. We're looking forward to this and this. Brothers and sisters, do you know why heaven is so good? It ain't. I'm in Georgia. I can use ain't, right? My ninth grade English teacher told me that you can use ain't for emphasis. It ain't because there are streets of gold and pearly gates. It ain't because my loved ones will be there. Heaven is so great because Jesus is there. And hell is so awful because Jesus ain't there. Seek my face. Stop seeking my stuff and seek my face. John Owen, a British pastor, he struggled often in his, we'll say, emotional life. He struggled to experience God, to really feel God. And he would oftentimes go into these, these really dark moments emotionally. He was talking with a young preacher boy one day, and the young preacher asked him that moment where God really changed and gripped his heart. And John Owen said, it was when God took me to the depths. What do you mean? John Owen helped this young preacher to understand that it was when God removed all the stuff and all he had was God. It was when God had him out in the depths. That was when he finally realized that God loved him enough that even with all, without all of the stuff, God was good and God was good to be around. He was good. And John Owen said, since that time, I've always experienced the grace and the presence and the experience of God. But He had to take me to the depths. I wonder how many of us, if you put the things of this world on one side of the scale and just God on the other, how many of us would choose God? I really mean that question to us. To be honest with you, I think it depends on the day when you ask me sometimes. Because I'm not perfect. But I know this. I know as the psalmist said, taste and see that the Lord is good. When you experience God, He is better than anything this world has to offer. He is better than anything this world has to offer. Taste and see that the Lord is good. And God says to His people, I want you to remember just how good I am. I want you to seek Me. Not my stuff, but Me. When they seek My face and turn from their wicked ways. It's the idea of repent. To turn from the path of evil and to turn from God. It means owning our sin. Owning our wrongdoing. Owning those things that we have done and haven't done to cause our current situation. We turn from our wicked ways, turning to God. God responds. He hears. I will hear from heaven. God pays attention. Isn't that amazing? I think we take that for granted. The fact that out of all the voices that cry out to God, that God hears my voice. 
I'm amazed at my wife. My wife can hear. I, again, I have three kids. My wife can not only hear the cries of our kids, but she can know which one is crying, and usually she can tell you why they're crying. It's amazing to me. I don't even hear them crying. And she knows which one it is and why they're crying. God, out of all of the multitude of people, He hears your voice. You know, Jesus says, I'm the good shepherd. And He says, my people hear my voice. The amazing thing that we find in Scripture is that God hears our voice. And He listens. And He pays attention. And He says, if you would just call to me, if you would just cry out to me, I am poised and ready to listen to you. He's paying attention, brothers and sisters. He wants to move in response. The God who controls the rain and the locusts and the plagues, He is listening and He will answer. And He will forgive. It's a fascinating word here. There are two words, at least two, but these are the two that, that we know of for sure. There are two words in the Old Testament that are used only for God. They are reserved for God. One we find in Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created. The word that's used there for create is only used of God. Because we don't create, we just take what He's created, we manufacture. God's the only one who can create something out of nothing. None of us can do that. And so that word in the Hebrew language, in the language of the Old Testament, is reserved for God. And so is the word forgive that's used here. It's only used of God. There are other words that are used for humans forgiving humans. But this one is the type of forgiveness that only God can extend to someone. Is that not incredible? God is the only one who can create like He has, and He's the only one who can forgive like He has. I'm amazed at how good God is. I'm amazed at that. You know, when you think about the gods of all of the other cultures, you think about the gods of the Greeks. We often think of these Greek gods, Zeus, and all these other gods. You know what's fascinating about Greek mythology and what we see in the Iliad and the Odyssey is that the gods don't abandon the people because the people are so evil and bad and corrupt. The gods don't abandon the people because they're so evil vile and corrupt, the people abandon the gods because the gods are so evil and vile and corrupt. They're so despicable that the people abandon the gods. Think about the God of Islam. He is a distant God. He is the type of God that you could brutally murder innocent people and have a direct pass to heaven. The amazing thing about our God, number one, is that He's real. These other gods, they're no gods at all. Our God is real. But if you could make up the kind of God that would be the best kind of God, it would be a God who is in complete control of everything but moves towards people always with love. Always with love. Even when we're going through the difficult times, even in the times when we're out in the depths, he loves us and He moves towards us with love. Brothers and sisters, He doesn't have to as God. 
but he does because he is love. And he moves towards us with mercy and grace and forgiveness. We do not deserve this God. We do not deserve the forgiveness that He extends to us. We do not deserve to be spared as God's people who have rebelled against Him. This country does not deserve to be saved by God. Our families don't deserve to have God move in them. Our churches don't deserve to have God's goodness and His grace and His favor poured out. He just loves us and He's good and He wants to forgive us. I will forgive. God longs to forgive and I will heal their land. The word's used for sewing together, patching up. It was used for a doctor. It was used for a physician. I'm assuming that you came in here tonight as we move to a close and you need some healing. Maybe there's a fracture in your life that needs God to repair it. Maybe there's a fracture in your family and you need God to repair it. Maybe there's a spiritual fracture in a loved one that you know and you need God to bring some healing. Maybe there's a spiritual fracture in your own life and you need God to bring healing. It's easy to look out there and say they need God to bring healing. But we need to look in here and recognize those areas of our lives that need the movement and the mercy of God. They need God's healing. And I would invite you and I would encourage you to start with yourself. And say, God, all is not right in here. All is not right in here. And God, I need you to mend the brokenness of this life right here. I need you to move in my heart. I need you to move in my spirit. I need you to move in my life. I need you to breathe life in me. And then, as he does that, He starts moving through us into the lives of others. Brothers and sisters, I genuinely want you to experience revival, excitement, passion for God. I want you to wake up in the morning and you can't wait to open God's Word and to hear from Him through His Word and to pray and seek His face. I want you to be bursting with excitement. I want you to approach every day And that moment on your calendar every day that you circle and you look forward to is your time with God. I want that for you. God wants that for you. And I believe you want that for you. The question is, are we willing to do whatever it takes to position ourselves before God so that we can experience the movement of God in our lives. Duncan Campbell was instrumental in the Hebrides revival. Not only is it a fun name to say, Hebrides, but it was also an amazing movement of God. Duncan Campbell at the time was a pretty popular preacher in his homeland. He was standing or he was sitting on a platform, sort of like a preacher's conference. He was one of the 
the noted preachers who was to preach that night. And as he was on the platform, God spoke to his heart and said, you are not to preach here tonight. You are to leave this place right now, get on a boat, and you are to go to Hebrides, the island, because I want to use you on that island. Duncan Campbell had longed to have that position on that platform to preach that sermon. And it was this crisis moment in his life. Was he going to go ahead and preach and say, God, I will tend to your business in a minute? Or was he going to be obedient to God? Walks over to the moderator and he says, I've got to go. What do you mean you've got to go? He says, I've got to go. God's calling me to the Hebrides. Leaves, gets on a boat, goes to the Hebrides. He doesn't know anyone there. He gets off the boat and there's a man waiting on him. And he says, are you Duncan Campbell? And he says, yes. He said, we've been praying for you for months. God put on our hearts that you were to come to our church and lead a revival. God wants to use you. I'm here to meet you. And he said, how did you know that I was coming? No one knew that I was coming. And he said, God told me. He takes Duncan Campbell. He goes to this camp. There were some students there at this camp. God was stirring and moving people. God began to stir the hearts of people. Duncan Campbell preached that night. And he was invited to go and talk to some students. He went to a tent. These students were staying in this tent. He began talking to the students. They were particularly burdened for their nation. Students. Teenagers. And one of the students said, Do you believe that God can bring revival here? And Duncan Campbell said, You're asking the wrong question. He said, Let me turn that on you. Do you believe? that God can bring revival here. Students put their head down for a moment, and one of the students picked his head up and said, if we're willing to pay the price. And Duncan Campbell walked out, went back to his room, went to sleep. Woke up several hours later, and he took a walk because he couldn't sleep, and he walked by that tent, and as he walked by, he saw all of those students on their faces before God, crying out that God would move. The next day, God moved on that island. He stirred the hearts of the people in their churches. God broke loose and it spread from that island to others. God did a work because a small group of people said, we're willing to do what it takes to humble ourselves and pray and seek the face of God. I spent a good bit of time in 2 Chronicles 7 tonight, but I wanted you to get a sense of what we're talking about when we talk about revival. Brothers and sisters, we need God to move. And we need to get serious about God's movement. We cannot continue to approach God like we've been approaching God and expect that things out there will change. I'm asking you, as the people of God, to seek the face of God, to pray and humble yourself and cry out to God that He would breathe life into His people once again. I'm going to ask you if you would bow your heads and close your eyes. As you bow your heads and close your eyes, I want to be very careful about this moment. I understand that tonight I have been preaching primarily to those who are a part of the church. 
those who have been born again. I started off talking about that. Those who have already put their faith in Jesus. But I recognize that tonight there is probably, there is more than likely one here tonight who hasn't been born again, who hasn't experienced the new life of Jesus. I cannot go any further without asking you to put your faith in Jesus. I believe in the Spirit of God. I believe in the work of God. I believe that as we talk about the things of God, the Spirit of God moves on our hearts. And I'm asking you tonight, if in listening to God's Word, in listening to me as God's messenger, if God has impressed upon your heart that you do not have a relationship with Him, that you don't know Him, that you've never been born again, all this talk about freshness and revitalization and revival of life, you don't know what it means to live. You're still walking around in your sin and your separation from God. I want to encourage and invite you now to begin a conversation with the Lord in which you ask Him to forgive you of your sins and give you new life. You can begin that conversation right where you are right now. You don't need me. You just need to talk to God. All that I would ask you is in just a moment when we have our time of response that you would come and let your pastor know that you have had a conversation with God in which you've asked God to give you new life. Maybe you're here and you have questions and you don't really know if you've experienced new life. Can I invite you to come and talk to your pastor? He would love to help you work through that and know exactly where you are spiritually. Maybe you're here tonight and this message has landed with a thud right in the middle of your heart, right in the middle of your life. Can I just encourage and invite you to ask the Lord to bring revival to your life. Ask God to do whatever it takes for you to experience a newness and a freshness in your walk with Him. Maybe you're here tonight and you're not quite there yet. Can I ask you if you would pray a simple prayer? And that is, Lord, I, I want to want more of You. I want to yearn for more of You, God. I want to want revival in my life. And that we would just confess our lack of a desire for the things of God, our lack of passion for God, and that we would ask that God would move to interrupt our lives and to bring about a freshness of passion for Him. As God is moving, I invite you to have a conversation with Him. And I invite you, if the Lord so leads in your heart, to come and talk to your pastor. To come and pray with your pastor. Have him pray with you. To come and use these steps as an altar or use your pew as an altar. Just have a conversation with God and respond however He's leading you. I'm going to pray and then we're going to sing and respond. I thank you so much for the opportunity to proclaim God's Word. I thank you so much for the attention that you've given me tonight. I thank you so much for hanging on. We have been in 2 Chronicles 7 for a while. But we've needed to spend our time 
defining our terms and helping us to understand what we mean when we say revival. And I would ask that you would join me in praying that over these next few nights, God would move and God would bring about revival in our lives. Lord, we surrender this time of response to you. We surrender this week to you. God, we need you to move. We need you to rescue as only you can. God, we need you to bring revival. We ask that of you, Lord. God, I ask for those who don't have a relationship with you. I pray, God, that you would help them to come to know you right now. That they would respond by putting their faith and their hope in you. That they would be born again, God, and experience your new life. And I pray, Lord, for all of those who have experienced your new life. God, that we would want to want more of you. That we would want to want revival. That we would want to yearn for you, God. And God, help us to be willing to do whatever it takes to experience more of you in our lives. We give you this time of response, Lord, and we pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen. I invite you to respond however the Lord is leading in this moment. Your pastor will be here as we sing. You respond.